You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. We're going to finish up this morning on a series we've been in on the Old Testament character of Gideon. His story is found in the Old Testament book of Judges there in chapter 6 through 8. And this morning we're going to kind of be looking at how Gideon's story kind of concludes. And there's both some very encouraging and just some very important lessons there in chapter 8. Now, again, to be honest with you, it would be really, really tempting to kind of just skip or to kind of gloss over uh, chapter 8 and kind of just leave Gideon as he is there in chapter 7, kind of the hero of the story. Uh, God has used him to kind of defeat the Midianites. And uh, so it would just be really tempting to kind of just end the story there and just kind of leave Gideon as this great, courageous warrior. And, and how God used Gideon and 300 men to kind of defeat 135,000 Midianites. Now just think about the balance there. 300 men versus 135,000. Now, if we were betting people, we would probably put our money on the 135,000 as being the victors of that particular battle. But when God is involved, God can do his best with very little. And we see that in Gideon's story. And I believe there are some very, very important reasons why we really need to look at chapter 8, this final chapter of Gideon's life. Now, the first reason is because I think one of the great evidences to me that the Bible is indeed the inspired, it's, it's the trusted, it is the inerrant word of God, is because the Bible tells the whole truth about everything, including its heroes. Now, if, if men were to have written the Bible, kind of independent of God, independent of his inspiration, there would probably be a tendency or a temptation to kind of just gloss over, to ignore, um, to minimize the faults, the failures, uh, the, um, ten, uh, the mistakes of biblical heroes, and just to kind of tell about only the good parts, the victories of their lives. But because the Bible is inspired of God, God always tells the truth about everything, exactly how it happened, both the good and the bad, both the challenging as well as the victorious. And we see this in a, in, in a lot of biblical characters. We, we see it in the life of David. We, we read the story of his victory over Goliath, and then we also read of his failure with Bathsheba. We see it with Moses and, and Noah, Abraham. We see it with all of Jesus' disciples, the Apostle Paul, many, many others throughout Scripture. And the Scripture includes details about all of their lives that include high points as well as low points. That's reason one. The second reason for us to look at this chapter is because you have a great reminder and an important lesson on finishing well in your faith journey. And again, I believe it's the goal of every Christian 
or it should be the goal of every Christian to, to kind of finish our spiritual walk strong. And to be able to hear the words of Matthew 25, 23, where it says, well done, good and faithful servant, right? We all want to hear those words when our life is over, to be able to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. To know that we were faithful, that we were good stewards of, of everything that we were given until the very end. The Apostle Paul kind of echoes this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. And he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Now again, Paul's telling us there, it's important that we faithfully persevere, that we're able to kind of cross the finish line there uh, and enter into eternity. And, and if we're able to do that, Paul kind of gives a promise there, uh, there in 2 Timothy 4. He says, there is a reward for those of us who do that. And he says, it is a crown of righteousness. Now, just kind of as a, as a side note, the Bible talks frequently about differing crowns that are given as part of our faithfulness, as part of our obedience um, to God. That when we stand before Christ on the day of judgment, he says, there will be rewards for those who have been obedient and faithful. For example, Revelation chapter 2, verse 10 says this, remain faithful even when facing death and I will give you the crown of life. So we see the crown of life there, we see the crown of righteousness and what Paul talks about there in 2 Timothy. Now again, that, that scripture there in Revelation chapter 2.10, it was written to a church that was facing severe persecution by unbelievers. And some of them were kind of tempted to forsake their faith in Christ um, because they were being threatened with torture or death. And so John there, he's encouraging them to remain faithful and to be obedient and that their good deeds of faithfulness to Christ uh, would be rewarded on the day of judgment. And scripture talks a lot about different crowns that would be given, again, for certain acts of obedience uh, and faithfulness. There's a crown of glory it talks about in scripture, a crown of rejoicing. We saw the crown of righteousness there in 2 Timothy. We see the crown of gold, and those are just a few. And all of these crowns will be given to believers at the, on the day of judgment um, as Christ rewards us for our faithfulness and good deeds. When you read the account of Gideon's life in this final chapter there, chapter eight of Judges, You'll discover that following his great victory there in, in chapter 7, he quickly kind of goes on uh, to experience one of his greatest defeats. And there's always the potential for every one of us, after we've had kind of a potential victory in life, that if we aren't careful and watchful, if we don't stay focused on the Lord, that it's easy to kind of let our guard down. And before you know it, the devil will take that as an opportunity to kind of hit you, to kind of take you out of the race, to kind of sideline you. 
The disciple Peter kind of knew that firsthand. You remember that he had kind of both spiritual highs and spiritual lows. And we see that there in uh, Matthew 16, where Peter has this great revelation of who Jesus is. Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And Peter responds, thou art the Christ, the, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And you remember Jesus commended him. He said, uh, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. He said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So he has this great revelation. He has this great proclamation of who Jesus is. And amazingly, it's just a few short verses later, he's rebuked by Jesus. Jesus is sharing with the disciples that he's going to go to the cross and be crucified. And Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to admonish him and to correct him and to tell him not to say such things. You remember Jesus' response to Peter was, get behind me, Satan, for you are not about the thoughts of God. You are about the thoughts of man. And again, it just kind of uh, exemplifies to us, again, how quickly we can, we can have those moments of transition where we're having a great victory and all of a sudden we find ourselves with a great failure. Peter knew firsthand and that's why I'm sure he wrote this in uh, 1 Peter 5, chapter 8 through 9. He says, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, always looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Again, Peter knew firsthand, and I'm sure he kind of thought back to that moment that I just described to you there. And he cautions us to always be on our guard. So again, no matter where you are in your faith journey, no matter how long you have been faithfully serving the Lord, it's again a great reminder that every one of us needs to be on the lookout. Because the devil, the adversary, he's always looking for an opportunity to take us out and to sideline us. And we see this in Gideon's story as well. As a matter of fact, there are several situations that kind of unfold in chapter 8. I'm going to just talk about two of them this morning. And the first situation that kind of unfolded and that first uh, temptation there, I think for Gideon, revol revolved around criticism. Judges chapter 8, verse 1, it opens up and it says, The people of Ephraim asked Gideon, why have you treated us this way? Why didn't you send for us? Why didn't you call us? First, when you went out to fight the Midianites, and they argued heatedly with Gideon. Now, the leaders of Ephraim kind of felt ignored. They kind of felt left out because Gideon had not called them to initially join in the battle against the Midianites. But he kind of rather left them for cleanup afterwards. Now, again, it's important to understand that the people of Ephraim, they kind of saw themselves as the largest, the most powerful, the most effective, the most influential tribe in all of Israel. Now, you remember Gideon, he kind of sees uh, himself, he kind of sees his tribe there as the least of the least. And then he and his family also the least of the least. 
So you have the, the people of Ephraim who see themselves as the best of the best versus Gideon who sees himself as the least of the least. So they confront Gideon and they demand to know why they were left out of being a part of the battle. In other words, they were criticizing the way Gideon waged the battle against the Midianites. One of the things that's happening there with the tribe of Ephraim is they were very prideful. They were very, very arrogant. Whereas Gideon is someone who was very humble. He was very meek. He, he saw his weaknesses. And again, every time we, no matter again how gifted you are, no matter how long you've been working for the Lord, every time we kind of come out of any place to, to serve the Lord with pride or arrogance, we're going to be overlooked. We're going to be sidelined. God, God can't use us when we're filled with pride and arrogance. And that's why the scripture is so clear in calling us to humble ourselves, to clothe ourselves with humility. Because God uses the humble, but he opposes the proud. And that's one of the things that's happening here in the story. It's one of the reasons that the people of Ephraim were sidelined and not useful, because they were filled with pride and arrogancy. Many years ago, the colonial era of this country, wealthy ladies were very, very proud of their uh, wide board oak floors. And at least once a week, uh, the servants would wet rub and then they would dry rub those floors to make them shiny. It was a very simple task where you would kind of run a mop along the grain of the wood, a wet mop, and then you would follow it up with a dry mop. And again, it would kind of give a, a gloss and a sheen to the floor. But if a careless worker would take that and begin to work against the grain, it would produce streaks on the floor. And when that happened, the lady of the house would scold the servant for rubbing the floor the wrong way. And that's where we get our phrase, to rub someone the wrong way. Gideon had rubbed the people of Ephraim the wrong way, and they were going to make sure Gideon knew about it. Now again, there's not a one of us in this room this morning that hasn't faced criticism at some point in our life. And should... We remain on the earth, Jesus tarries. We're going to face criticism again and again and again. Every one of us faces criticism at some point in our lives. It's inevitable. It goes with life, and there's just no way to escape it. Criticism can basically leave us one of two ways, bitter or better. As Gideon is facing this onslaught of criticism from the people of Ephraim, I think Gideon realizes he's got a choice. I can either use this to make me better, or I can use it to make me bitter. So I want to share with you how to rub people the right way. And it's what Gideon chooses to do in his response to the people of Ephraim. There is one surefire, fail-proof, guaranteed way to rub someone the right way, and it's called encouragement. It works every time, any place, on practically everybody, and it is a word of encouragement. It's something I need, it's something you need. We all need encouragement throughout our lives. 
Again, human nature, especially our fallen human nature, is so quick to uh, tear down rather than to build up. And I've heard somebody say, for, you know, every, for every poke, we need 10 strokes. We probably hear more often 10 words of discouragement and only one word of encouragement. And far too often we're guilty uh, of taking the time to discourage someone, but we never take the opportunity to encourage someone. I don't know if, how many of you are familiar with the old saying, and that is, is that we write our criticisms in dust, our compliments in marble. But so often we kind of do the exact opposite, don't we? As the old couplet once said, once I did bad and that I heard ever, twice I did good, but that I heard never. The truth of the matter is we all have our distractors, we all have our discouragers, and there are times where we just need a word of encouragement. So I wanted you to see how Gideon uses encouragement in his response to their criticism. Judges chapter, uh, verse, chapter 8, verse 2, it says, But Gideon replied, What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't even the leftover grapes of Ephraim's harvest better than the entire crop of my little clan of Abizer? God gave you victory over Oreb and Zeb, the commanders of the Midianite army. What have I accomplished compared to that? When the men of Ephraim heard Gideon's response, their anger subsided. Now I want you to see how Gideon chooses to respond to this criticism. He counters it with an encouraging response. Gideon responds to their criticism, again, with kindness and gentleness and humility. And basically, he's kind of stroking their egos. And he's telling them, hey, your accomplishments compared to mine, they are much greater. And he says, not only that, but he says, even the leftover grapes, the, 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 the lesser of your produce is, is much greater than the great grapes of my whole entire crop. And he compares that and he says, not only are your accomplishments greater than mine, but your produce exceeds that of mine. He says, God allowed you, God used you to capture the top two commanders of the Midianite army. He says, man, your accomplishments, your contributions to this battle are much greater and exceed anything that I have done thus far. And he says his response, that that response caused the anger of the Midianites, of, of the, uh, the people of Ephraim to subside. And again, you see there the power of encouragement. Mark Twain once said, I can live two months on one good compliment. That's all people need sometimes. Coach John Woodman, he coached the UCL Bruins to 11 national championships in just 13 years. And I believe he kind of understood Mark Twain's statement, and he kind of had a way of implementing that and made sure that his players also uh, applied it. Wooden instructed his players that whenever a basket was made, the player who scored was required to smile, to wink, to nod, 
or to point to the person who fed him the ball that enabled them to make the shot. And he would tell his players this all the time. He was working with a new team and he was sharing this with them. And one of the new players had said to him, well, coach, what if they don't look? And his response to them was, I guarantee you, he'll look. We're all looking for encouragement and affirmation. And Gideon understood that and he chose to apply that in this situation. And in so doing, he avoided the trap that so many of us fall into when we face criticism, and that's tit for tat. You nuke me, I'll nuke you. So again, let us learn and be reminded through Gideon's example of how to respond to criticism. The second hurdle that Gideon faced was the hurdle of compromise. So following Gideon's complete defeat of the Midianites, the Israelites say to him in verse 22, be our ruler. You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. So Gideon kind of becomes this brand new hometown hero. And the people's response to that is they want to make him king. They want to kind of put him up on this pedestal. And we do that a lot with people. But as you're going to see here in a few verses, while Gideon made a very courageous warrior, he didn't make for a very good high priest. Not every hero is cut out to be a leader. Not every hero is cut out to be king. Not every hero is cut out to be president. I don't know how many of you remember back to the days of the Persian Gulf War. Following the conclusion of that, everyone wanted General Norman Schwarzkopf and General uh, Colin Powell to be president. And again, just because someone is great on the battlefield doesn't necessarily mean they'll be equally as great in the White House. And the same thing is basically happening here to Gideon. God has used him greatly to defeat the Midianites, and now everyone is ready to kind of make him their king. They don't even know if he would make a great king, but it doesn't matter. He's a hero. So the people, they're bragging on Gideon. They're telling him how great he is. And again, there's difference between encouragement and flattery. And I think Gideon kind of knew the difference, and he knew this was not the right move. And so Gideon responds in verse 23, says, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. So he says, I'm not going to be your king. God is your king. And Gideon knew that that wasn't God's plan for the nation of Israel. That at that time, God's plan for the nation of Israel was to be a theocracy. That God had set the nation of Israel apart to himself. And one of the distinctions that God wanted to make between the nation of Israel and every other nation in the world at that time was that God wanted to be the king, the ruler over the nation of Israel. God's plan for Israel was to be a theocracy, not a monarchy. God never intended, God never desired for Israel to have a king. That was a concession that God gave to the Israelites when they constantly told God they wanted to be like every other nation. And so God gave them a king, but it was never God's original intent. 
And Gideon understood this, and therefore he refuses to go along with their plan. So far, so good for Gideon. But Gideon begins to compromise, and he kind of begins this very slow, gradual, subtle shift into compromise. And it begins here in verse 24. And he says, however, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from the plunder you collected from your fallen enemies. The, oftentimes when armies would conquer other armies, they would kind of go through and they would strip the fallen warriors or they would strip the people or the city or the village. They would just completely strip it of all of its resources. And so this happened as the Israelites conquered the Midianites. Uh, they began to take uh, their plunder. And one of the things that they had taken there were earrings. And so the enemies being Ishmaelites all wore gold earrings. Gladly they replied and they spread out a cloak and each one threw in a gold earring he had gathered from the plunder. The weight of the gold earrings was 43 pounds, not including the royal ornaments and pendants the purple clothing worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains around the necks of their camels. Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold and put it in Orphrah, his hometown. And soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it, and it became a trap or a snare for Gideon and his family. So what's going on here? In the days of the Old Testament, again, the wearing of gold earrings had very deeply religious connotations. They were kind of an entwined part of the worship, especially of the Ishmaelites. So Gideon asked for these very specific parts of the plunder that were significant to the worship of the Ishmaelites. And, and he takes that and, and he makes a sacred ephod out of all the earrings collected. Now, uh, an ephod was a kind of apron, and there should be a picture up there on the screen. There it is. Uh, it is a sacred uh, kind of an apron. It kind of goes over the head. It kind of extends down beyond uh, the waist there. And it's tied together on the shoulder uh, by two very precious stones. And what you'll see in there is that on the very front part, on the chest of the high priest, there would be what they called uh, a breastplate. And that breastplate would contain 12 precious stones. And each of those stones represented one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this sacred ephod was really to be worn only by the high priest. And the high priest would wear this ephod, and, and inside that ephod, there was a, a pocket. And, and in the pocket, there would be two stones. One stone would be marked Urim, and the other one stone would be marked Thuman. And it was used to discern the will of God. And we would see it in other places as called the casting of lots. So whenever a decision needed to be made, a yes, a, a no, a, a good or, or bad, they would, they would pray and ask the Lord to use the casting of lots to reveal to them his will. And so the high priest carried those, and any time a decision needed to be made, they would pray, reach in, pull out one of the stones, and it, it would either be a yes 
or a no, a good, uh, or a bad. And we see the casting of lots uh, all throughout the Old Testament. We even see it into the beginning of the New Testament. And the last time the casting of lots was used was when they replaced Matthias uh, with Judas there in Acts chapter 1. And so this sacred ephod would be worn only by the high priest who would perform religious duties on behalf of the nation of Israel. They were the ones that would, would make sacrifices. They would, they would take an animal, they would sacrifice it on the altar. Then they would take the blood of the animal and they would kind of begin to sprinkle that uh, on the altar. And, and the priests would wear this sacred ephod in connection uh, to the holy things of God. So now you understand kind of why Gideon specifically wanted the gold earrings. They were connected to the worship, to the religious life of the Ishmaelites. And Gideon takes that and he kind of begins to use it towards the religious life and connects it to the worship of Israel. So Gideon makes this sacred ephod and he puts it in, the home, in his hometown city of Orphra. And this is where the compromise of Gideon begins. The problem for Gideon is they already had a sacred ephod in Shiloh. They didn't need another one in his hometown city. Do you see what Gideon was doing? Gideon didn't want to be king, but he wanted to be a high priest. And the problem with that was, was God called him to be a courageous warrior. God never called him to be the high priest. And Gideon made a magnificent and a wonderful, courageous warrior, but he made a terrible high priest. And you'll see uh, this as the story unfolds. Again, God never called him to be a high priest. And what you've got here is you've got the makings of what we would call a homemade religion. And Gideon is, is compromising religiously. He, he's compromising spiritually. They already had a sacred ephod in Shiloh. They did not need another one in Orphra. They already had a high priest in Shiloh. They didn't need another one in his hometown. And the results of this are disastrous for the nation of Israel. That's why you see there in verse 27, but soon, shortly thereafter, all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it, and it became a trap, or other translations say it became a snare for Gideon and his family. This sacred ephod began a trajectory, a very slow, a very subtle trajectory of compromise for Gideon and his family. Look at verse 30. Gideon had 70 sons born to him, for he had many wives. In other words, polygamy. It's true that there is polygamy all over the Old Testament, but you have to keep in mind there's a difference between what the Bible reports and what the Bible supports. Remember in the days of Jesus' ministry when they were talking to Jesus about divorce, and they said, you know, Moses kind of set up some guidelines. He made some allowances for divorce. And Jesus said, Moses did that because of the hardness of your heart. But he says this very interestingly. He says, but it was not this way from the beginning. And you remember, Jesus points them back to God's original blueprint for marriage, which was one man, one woman, 
one lifetime. Monogamy, not polygamy. And not only did Gideon have many wives, but he also had a concubine at Shechem. And look at what verse 31 says, who gave birth to a son whom Gideon named Abimelech. Do you know what the name Abimelech means? Gideon, it means my father is king. Isn't that interesting? Gideon named his son, my father is king. Now earlier, God, Gideon refuses their offer to be a king. But he demonstrates at this point in his life, as he has gradually, subtly shifted in compromise, that he now sees himself living like a king. He sees himself now as a king. And as you read on into Judges 9, you'll see that Abimelech goes on and he comes back and he slaughters all of Gideon's 70 sons minus one. And Abimelech tears apart the family, the legacy, the ministry of Gideon. And he caused tragedy for the whole nation of Israel. That is the fruit of compromise. And the final result of Gideon's compromise that started there with that sacred ephod is found there in verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of Baal, making Baal Barith their God. They forgot the Lord their God who had rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them, nor did they show any loyalty to the family of Gideon despite all the good he had done for Israel. And again, sadly, once Gideon kind of started down this path of compromise, it didn't take the nation of Israel too long after Gideon was gone to completely compromise and to forsake the God of Israel. And again, we see this pattern repeated over and over and over throughout the book of Judges. Gideon kind of starts them on this path toward compromise, and they were only too happy to keep going once he was gone all because Gideon stumbled crossing the finish line. Now, I believe Gideon is in heaven. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews compromises or compliments Gideon for his uh, great faith there in Hebrews chapter 11. So Gideon, I believe he makes it across the finish line, but not, in his, not as well as he could have. So let me just close this morning by giving you a few suggestions for those of us who not only want to run the race well, but finish the race well. And first is we got to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, not on people. We need to look to God to kind of supply our needs and to, on our satisfaction in life. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. Once they talk about all of these great men and women of faith, it says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. If we don't fix it on the people that he talks about there in Hebrews 11, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. 
Again, Jesus knows firsthand the need as well as the challenges every one of us are going to face in this life in order to finish the race well. Jesus is the author. He is the finisher. He is the perfecter of our faith. And Jesus was able to finish the uh, race of life well, despite all of the challenges he faced. And he has given to you and I the Holy Spirit. And through that power working in us and through us, we can also have confidence that as we stay fixed and focused on Jesus, we will finish the race of life as well. Second is don't compromise your obedience to God's word. Disobedience is the road to spiritual defeat. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. One surefire way to avoid compromise in your life is to make sure you aren't trying to live the Christ life alone and disconnected from God and from fellow believers. To have at least a few people in your life who are able to bring correction to bring accountability to your life and to your choices. I don't know that Gideon had anyone around him that could kind of begin to point out the ways that he kind of began to compromise. And if he did, maybe he would have made different choices. Jesus did not live his earthly life or his ministry alone, and neither should we. I saw a saying a while back that said this. It said, one Christian, no Christian. Meaning if you're attempting to live the Christ life apart from being involved in a local church, uh, being in regular fellowship with other believers who can, again, encourage and support and challenge you when necessary, serving others, using your spiritual gift for the benefit of others, chances are very good. You will have a very superficial and a shallow walk with God. The scripture says forsaking the gathering of others is not to be compromised. And that when we forsake the gathering of ourselves together, that eventually it just leads to a dead end. I believe we should all have a commitment to one another and to see that each of us is able to cross the finish line well. Third thing is make sure your lifestyle is consistent with what God's word says. As you're reading God's word, again, pay close attention Ask the Holy Spirit to be searching your heart, your life, your motives, your thoughts, and that he would bring any kind of conviction to your life, especially if the word of God says one thing and you're kind of doing the complete opposite. Ask the Holy Spirit to maybe help you in any and all areas of your life where you feel like maybe you're not being consistent with the word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 18, again, it's a great reminder of how God wants to use his word in our lives. And there it says that all scripture, from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. God uses this word to prepare and equip his people to every good work. Let me just close this morning with this blessing from Jude chapter 24, verse 25. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling 
and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.